This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hey Blenders, it's Sean, and yes, I have a strange backdrop because I'm still in Los Angeles where we recorded the very special Quentin Tarantino episode, and you guys will be listening to that shortly. We have a bonus episode this week that I wanted to introduce to you guys. We got a chance to sit down with Josh Lucas to talk about The Forever Purge, uh, which is coming to theaters through uh, Universal Studios. So they offered Josh to come and sit down, and you know, he's a great character actor, so we wanted to jump at the chance to speak with him. But you guys are going to love this episode. It's absolutely one of those ones where... I couldn't predict where it was going to go. And as we were talking, you reminded about the number of different people that Josh has worked with over the years, the amazing filmmakers that he uh, has collaborated with and still aspires to collaborate with. And you're going to be blown away by what um, a cinephile he is. He loves directors and cinematographers. He's one of those guests that just really fits perfectly into the mood of Real Blend. I know you guys are going to love this conversation, uh, even if you're not a huge fan of the Purge series. So definitely give it a listen. Without further ado, our uh, Real Blend interview with Josh Lucas on behalf of the Forever Purge. Well, first off, Josh, this is the Real Blend podcast. Thank you so much for joining us here. We are um, sort of a geeky filmmakers type podcast. We would like to get into the nuts and bolts of how these things are made and some of the things, the motivation behind them. You have not done a ton of horror over the course of your career. And I'm uh, wondering from an actor's perspective, if you think the horror story has to have some sort of social commentary or, or go beyond just the scares, you know, and the gore that's seen on screen in order to get you interested in it as a project. I must admit, I am not a horror fan. Um, and partly it comes down to, I don't, I, I might be quite sensitive to cinema. I, you know, my parents took me to um, a drive-in movie theater, I guess when I was like three or four years old, literally it's the classic story. Like I was snuck in the back. They thought I was asleep. They took me to see a horror film and they didn't know that I was awake. Now I don't remember what film it is. I've actually searched for it because there's like a, there's like a seared image into my head of okay. basically it's a this the image is this maybe you or some one of your your listeners will remember a guy is running down the road like he's jogging and 
a truck pulls by a van pulls pulls by right when he is running by a fountain and the okay. door of the van opens up and the runner is pushed by someone like very hard into a uh, like a not a pond, but like a fountain that's in the road. Like okay. The road, and they've put right. gas inside the fountain, and it explodes, and the person burns to death. And I was oh gosh, I was three years old. I don't. I they had no idea that I was secretly in the back of the the station wagon, literally like watching. And I guess I right. started screaming and crying, and like frankly, I've been kind of terrified. <laughs> I've been terrified of horror movies ever since. <laughs> Um, and you know, I, I just, I definitely shy away from watching them and I am attracted to them if they are, yes, I guess have a political or a psychological component that is the primary element of them. I obviously am mm. a real fan of certain movies like alien. Um, and the, the ones that I think are, are really just like, you know, so quiet and slow in the build. And and that's what I've always been struck by. Now, The Purges, I didn't know The Purge franchise. I mean, I knew what it was, but I, I had not seen yeah. them. Um, and so when Everardo, the director, called me about it, uh, he was very clear of the kind of movie he was hoping to make. And that when I read it, actually, they didn't tell me it was a Purge film and that I read it with a different name. So it was not till about three quarters or halfway through that it became like, oh, this is a Purge film. Oh, interesting. Okay. And they were doing that on purpose. You know, they very clearly said that they wanted it to be a standalone Western that sort of reinvented mm. the, the movies to an extent. But um, but I was most struck by what I then learned about Everardo and what he wanted to do with the movie. Hmm. Um, he's a really talented filmmaker. I want to jump ahead to uh, a couple of cool shots that he gets. Um, one is in particular in the cab of the truck that you're driving. Uh, it's sort of a spinning, you know, it goes over each of the faces of the cast members and then follows one of your co-stars out the passenger side door. Can you just elaborate how that was achieved on set that day? That shot really blew me away. Well, it was from the beginning of it. said, you know, I have this hope that we're going to do a sequence, which is like what, seven, eight minutes long, which is, you know, the, the, the children of men sequence. Right. I mean, to go back to alien, or to go back to, you know, the great, the great Stanley Kubrick, you know, this idea of using Steadicam in a way that you're always attempting to, to break a, to break the boundaries of it in, in a way. Right. I mean, obviously 1917, you know, Roger Deakins does it rather geniusly, but sure. and his, his uh, cinematographer have worked together many times. They had this very idea of this very physical, visceral, with you at all times sort of style of the way the movie was going to be made. But this one sequence in particular, which was rehearsed for a huge period of time. Um, and right. that was then an attempt to do basically a seven minute unedited or, you know, shot coming from the driving into the town of El Paso to the border um, in through the, basically what is, you know, a, an, a mass civil war like uh, atmosphere where there's tanks and there's, you know, troops and there's um, purgers and all of it is clashing and that we are moving through it in a single take. Um, and it was wildly ambitious, uh, brutal to attempt. And there was, you know, there was no doubt that they were like, look, I mean, the first thing he did is he took our phones away. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. That's funny. He made all the actors give up their phones. He said, you know, I, I don't want anyone distracted today. This is too important. We need full focus. 
Um, and they were really cool with the, you know, cause there's a huge amount of background extras and stunt people and everyone. And they were very clear on this is a mass collaborative environment, particularly that scene. And that we knew we were attempting to, you know, pull off something that's very hard to do um, and very physically rough. That's for sure. I wish one of my co-stars was here, uh, Kevin McCarthy. He references the Children of Men ping pong ball sequence constantly and the way that Chivo sort of achieved that by going around the car. And uh, that's definitely one of the shots that we reference often on this show. So, Well, that was, um, this film, was that's what they told me from the first conversation before I even you know was on the film. If you're going to strive for something, that's a good one to... Yeah, to cool. try to replicate. So uh, this film was delayed like so many of the films uh, for a year due to COVID. Um, but over the last month in particular, with the way that this film plays out, we learned a lot about how society, uh, people kind of handle tougher situations, you know, um, whether it's for here. I love the fact that there's that element of, you know, the people lock themselves down for, for the 12 hours, but as opposed to other purge films that goes by very quickly. And it's almost like, how do we react after the fact kind of thing? Um, have the last 18 months almost, changed how you looked at this film um having done the work on it already uh and and maybe the series differently too you know my understanding is that there's a sort of uh clear sense of fantasy that the purges have that then become timely and prophetic in a way that they're almost like in hindsight more disturbing i think had yeah. this movie been released you know a year ago when it was originally supposed to be released it might have even maybe less of the, I wouldn't say less of the power, but less of the, like the, the things that have happened in our culture and in our society and in our politics and in the, you know, the, the nature of what we're going through, I think have made the movie even more uncomfortable in some ways, it, you know, and, and that there are moments, I'll tell you one that's in particular to me. Mm-hmm. There's the, the 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 caravans, right? That you see the trucks driving with the the flags, the the purge forever flags, and the you know yeah. the flag, yeah. uh, and those those caravans, if you will, of of trucks and motorcycles and stuff. Um, I have been in a couple environments now where that happened, you know, for real in the past six months. And it was striking because when we were making the movies, they they almost seemed I wouldn't say fantastical, but they almost seemed like over the top. And then when you're inside sure. of it for real, um, it was, it made me even more, I guess, aware of the power of what DeMonica is doing and what these movies are talking about and why they are, you know, sure, they're cinema, they're cinematic horror fantasy in a way, but I do think that there's something way powerfully disturbing underneath them like the, they're really the ultimate cautionary tale really is what they are yeah no they are and that's kind of what i wanted to ask about the tone going that you're going for when you're uh going through a lot of the actions is whether you're striving to make it seem exaggerated you know or whether you're trying to get it as close to the line as you can so that when we're watching it we're kind of believing like god this is really close to what we might see I can't imagine, I can't speak for DeMonica or those guys, but I don't think that they realized how many elements of this movie were going to play out, you know, almost within months of it, of us shooting it. I don't, you know, mm. I, I don't know that that was, I, I think that they're trying to just make really fun, scary cinema. Um, but that, yeah. that without a doubt, DeMonica is talking very clearly about, 
you know, gun violence and politics and, and, you know, look, the, the, the civil war nature of this movie to an extent. Right. I mean, th there's a line that they added recently that we did an ADR where I'm the driving in the truck and I see one of the billboards on the side that's flashing for the forever purge. And I say, you know, something along the lines of Jesus, the government paid for that. Like, you know, and it's yeah. this idea of at what level is this, division that we're in right that we're in as a country at what level is it being manipulated by the government by the press by media by all of it the swirling nature of it all and i think that the the movie does attempt to you know and my assumption is that people could walk away from this movie and see a you know a hardcore liberal message and they could also see a hardcore conservative message <laughs> so sure. yeah, yeah. yeah. like uh that that's pretty interesting <laughs> but even just to be so prescient about the border arguments, you know, like when, when they announced that, that the borders were opening on either side of us, my wife just laughed out loud. She's like, oh, my God, how does this movie even how are they that far ahead kind of thing? Well, look, when I read it first, that's what it was called. It was called Borderline, you know, and it was oh, really. really and that's what I was told. It was a border, a political border movie with a very interesting Mexican director. And then, like, I get three quarters or, you know, halfway through the first uh, 10, 15 pages. And I was like, wait, they keep mentioning purge. I wonder if they're like, I was like, oh, wow. That, so they did it on purpose. You know, they were like, we don't want you to know because they, I think they didn't want me to have any preconceived notions to be dismissive of it. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I do think that's kind of what will be interesting for audiences who both love the purge. You know, my manager said something really interesting. He said, I think there will be people who go to this movie because they love these movies and there will be people who get drug along that they're going to be surprised, maybe like your wife of like, whoa, that's a, that, 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 you know, and hopefully that's what makes it fun, right? Is that the, the Mad Max sort of element of this one in particular. So as someone who didn't love horror films and now you've worked on one, uh, did it strip away the mystique of them? Do you kind of understand now the nuts and bolts of how they're put together? Can you, will well, you go back and revisit some classics that you might've skipped? I would say I, you know, I definitely, I have seen, I think many of the very good ones and I really, really appreciate them. I don't, what I, I guess, I guess the struggle as an actor sometimes is that they're brutal to make, you know, like you're, you're being brutalized, right? Like I, I got, um, there was some interest at one point in me being part of like the Saw franchises. And I was just like, I couldn't imagine spending my day inside of that mindset. That's sort of the gruesomeness of it, the gore of it. Right. That's where I get as a cinema, I guess a cinephile as, as somebody who it's just not my cup of tea, but also it's like, look, when you go to bed and you, 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 you watch that for some people, look, my son loves to be scared. Okay. I don't love to be scared. <laughs> so, yeah. I, you know, like, <laughs> so, especially like a jump scare too. Yeah. Like a jump scare makes you feel guilty afterwards. Right. Like you're like, oh, exactly. why did I let that get me? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you, you have seen the movie. I purposely have not seen the movie because I want to see it in a cinema with a bunch of people. Mm. Uh, I, I, they've offered to show me a, you know, links and different things. And, I, you know, to go back to Poseidon, Poseidon, the big action movie I made many years ago, the first time I saw it was on a computer. And frankly, I thought like, oh, it's okay. It didn't, you know, it didn't really work for me. Um, and I knew what we poured into it. And I didn't see, I did all the press. I did everything for the movie for a long period of time. And I didn't see it till about three, four weeks after it came out, I went to an IMAX and I saw it in IMAX. 
And I was really angry at myself because I basically didn't see the movie until I saw it in IMAX, Mm. you know, and that Wolfgang edited that movie in IMAX. And so I feel like I would be doing myself and the filmmakers and everybody. And I'm not not saying it because I'm trying to be like, Oh, here we go. We get to go back to movies. It's because that's the experience I want. I want to be in a movie theater with a bunch of people who have those jump scare moments and I'm waiting for that. And I can analyze in a weird way, the movie better if I see it in that context first, rather than seeing it like you and I are now on a little Mac computer, you know? So, well, listen, I, one of the films you were just recently involved in Ford Ferrari, Ford versus Ferrari, people didn't experience it unless they saw it in a theater. Like James Mangold mixed that sound to be experienced in a theater. Without a doubt. I mean, and that's his obsession, his like, I, I actually went a couple times to the mixing stage and watched and they were doing it on the, some of the Sony, some of the biggest Sony screens on purpose. And they were playing with, you know, just the, the, the sound design, but also even, you know, that movie has very, very little CGI and right, right. Aiden, this, you know, the amazing cinematographer of that movie, like the way he's using these reflections in the, the goggles and in the glasses and all that stuff, it was I would say enhanced, but it was all there. So that, and it really, look, that's the beauty of big screen cinema, right? And what I feel like all of us are so worried about losing, but then also the experience of, man, I I have in the last number of years lived in Harlem and the Michael, uh, Mike, um, what's his name? The Magic Johnson Cinema on 126th is where me and my little boy watched every movie for the last five years. And to go to that cinema with a big group of people, it's there's nothing like it. I mean, on mm. a, early on in a weekend, I mean, the 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 interaction <laughs> is extraordinary, amazing. Yeah. It's um, its own experience. No, I'm I'm listen. I'm a Marvel junkie. Yeah. You can see over my shoulder here, and I can't imagine experiencing those two films, you know, on a laptop, like you said. So I'm thankful we're all getting back to that. You brought up something that I had to bring up um, only for this reason because my, our other co-host Jake Hamilton, who wasn't able to be here, recently interviewed Ray Liotta um, for a different piece, and he's in uh, Jake's in Chicago, and he's going to go cover the Field of Dreams game between the Yankees and I forget the other team that's doing it. And he brought up Field of Dreams, Ray Liotta. Ray Liotta said he's never seen it before. Um, you know, you, you waited specifically to see certain films of yours, but is that an opportunity? Is that like, I couldn't wrap my brain around the fact that like Ray Liotta hasn't seen a movie that he's in. Has you that know, happened to you before? Why had he not seen it? He didn't say, he just said a couple of things came up and I never got around to it. And then, and then he's, then it's on. Like, is that, does, well, do you understand that? Johnny Depp who's never seen any of his films. Uh, maybe, maybe that's what it is. I, I think it's Johnny Depp who's net, like literally only seen a couple of his films and that he was so, um, uncomfortable watching himself that he didn't want to do. He didn't want to work with that in his mind. Now I feel a little bit the opposite. Like I feel like I'm capable of really being pretty rough. Like my critical, like to go way back when I was growing up in high school, I went to a pretty uh bad public high school. It's all there is to it. And my dad was really angry about the fact that they said I didn't have any homework and I wasn't really, I wasn't doing anything in his mind that was worthy. Um, And I, he could tell that I had a real interest in cinema. And so he brought home Pauline Kael's 5,001 nights at the movie. Okay. He made me watch a movie, read her review and then write my own review. Oh my God. That became my homework every Friday night. I had to do it. And so 
I started to, I mean, I hated it, by the way. I was really angry about it, but he made me do it. And so ever since then, I feel like with my own movies, I almost can tear them apart critically before before I then can kind of really go back and look at them and be like, okay, well, this is what's good and what's not good. And like, and, and frankly, part of it is not the experience of how you see it, you know, as, as you know, and like seeing it, look, if you're in a bad mindset or you're, you know, whatever it may be, it, it affects it. Right. So um, I feel like I have a pretty, uh, a pretty clear ability to appreciate or, or even um, be critical of a film that I'm in, maybe even more so. Right. Um, and some of them, you know, I could, for, you know, frankly comes to mind is my, the experience of watching Hulk. Cause I thought Ang Lee's Hulk that I got to be a part of, like, I thought he did something extraordinary in that movie. It's got mm -hmm. it's a mess, but it's a fantastic mess. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and I, to me, like I was, I, that's what I saw. And then I was kind of struck by like, wait, this movie kind of got dismissed. It's like, it's, it's too interesting to be dismissed, you know, cinematically, I would say. Right, right, right. That gives you a new incident insight into reading criticisms of your film then too. I don't know if you do that, but you well, without did. a doubt I do that. And I have one look, Manola Dargis, I think I, I've almost never disagreed with her. Really? I can tell you. And she's been she's been very kind to me a couple times and okay. she's been very rough on me a couple times. And well, a couple times she wrote a scathing review once of me that I, I actually she she you know, like a lot of great reviewers, she has no interaction with anybody, but so okay. But I sent her an email saying, I agree with you. <laughs> I, was, I was terrible in that movie. <laughs> I won't say what it is, but. <laughs> That's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. Um, I want to get back to Purge and then we'll keep going down the, the road of uh, of um, your career. Absolutely. Because, uh, but there there is something about a criticism of these films. And I'm curious how you think about this, that like there are people who, uh, dismiss them as they're just uncomfortable to sit through. You know, it's not entertaining necessarily. Um, hey, man, I saw the other day, the thing about social media is so interesting is that, you know, people can reach out to you and mostly I don't pay attention to all of it, but for some reason I happened to see an incoming message from a parent who was saying, I'm really angry that they're showing purge trailers at 6 a.m. on ESPN during the U UEFA World Cup because my kids love their young kids my kids love the world or the UEFA Cup and it's they're too scary those trailers they should not yeah. be showing those trailers so early mm. and I frankly I understand I I do I get that um that's kind of what I'm saying for myself about some horror that I really sh I shy away from I again I think this movie is probably more in the tone of Mad Max or something is my assumption of it. But, right. um, but yeah, I, I think it's fair criticism without a doubt. There's also that element of working with animals. Um, you do, <laughs> you have some stuff with horses in this. Sure. Uh, is it as difficult as people say in terms of getting it right? And there's you know, the idea of like someone's a natural cowboy, you know, and if you're not a natural cowboy, how difficult can it be? Well, there's truth to that, but this is what's interesting. So that was War Horse. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So, and that horse is so brilliant and so trained and so, so profoundly gifted as a performer. Um, meaning it was the horse that did the main stuff during Spielberg's War Horse. Um, That's amazing. It was, I mean, to the point where it was almost easy to work with that horse. And, really? Yeah. Like where it was like, <laughs> 
you know, just jump up, you know, stay, you know, I, so, so I could get almost, and I'm, I love actually, weirdly enough, I love working with animals. I love working with children. I find them like they keep you, they, they're the opposite. They keep you honest. They make you be present in a way they don't allow that, you know, to me that that's, I know, yes, people talk about how difficult it is, but that's oftentimes my experience has been the opposite because the, the animals I've worked with oftentimes and the kids I've worked with, frankly, have been as gifted or more gifted and more disciplined oftentimes than the actors I'm working with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I would imagine that that's a nicer day on set too than when you're bound and gagged, you oh, know? Dude, without a doubt, period. Yeah, yeah without a doubt. Even just the mental toll of that, I can't imagine. No, I, you know, I, I, I will say that's part of it. Like when I look at scripts these days, particularly having a child, you know, you're going to come home to your kid at the end of the day. And you're, if your mindset is just kind of, you know, beaten in a way and the, sure. the violent nature of this story and, you know, definitely I choose scripts without a doubt based on that. This one, I do believe from the beginning, we discussed the really interest. This director Everardo had a beautiful line that I've never heard before. He said, I want to plant diamonds in a storm. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. And he said, I believe, you know, the purge films are, an attempt to discuss the storm of American society. And I, I want to plant some diamonds inside of it. And, and I want you to come and help me do that. And I was like, Oh man, that was, and it really was our goal. We talked about it almost every day. Like what, what diamond can we plant inside of this, whether it was a, a filmmaking diamond or whether it was a, you know, story, you know, something acting, some, some, some element of it. He had that every day. I, I was a cool thing. Honestly, I, I think that's shown through, um, you know, because I went into it expecting it to be a purge movie and I got so much more out of it. Well, Everardo, you know, look, uh, his godfather, who he basically was raised by, was Louis Bunuel, you know, who he, many people would say is one of the great cinema uh, auteur filmmakers of all time, you know, the right. borderline Fellini of, of Mexico. And so he grew up with this very intense artistic um sensibility and i think without a doubt i've i really have a feeling that guy is going to make some extraordinary cinema i, I think there's going to be no doubt well you certainly know uh because you've worked with some amazing directors over the years um how many projects have you chosen or, or have you ever chosen a project simply because of the director who's attached or is story paramount i, I would say i'm probably more oriented towards a director even than story um, really yeah, I really do. I, I believe that, you know, I, I've written directors, many directors letters um, to say, I will be, you know, an extra carrying balloons in the background of your scene because, <laughs> because I just want to work with you. I want to see what it's like. And actually one of them worked out, which was Eastwood. Like I wrote him a letter and I got a call from his casting person and said, oh, you know, Clint's got something for you and Jay Edgar and it's not that big, but you know, and I was like, are you kidding me? I'll, I'll be there tomorrow. And, yeah. um, and it, what, what blows my mind about directors and great directors, I've been really lucky, man. I've worked with, you know, Catherine Bigelow, worked with, um, Eastwood. I worked with Ang Lee. I mean, James Mangold, like it's just yeah. a really fantastic. Ron Howard 20 movie. years ago. Exactly. Yeah. Is that there is no common denominator. Oh, That's really? None. Zero. Like Eastwood is as different from any one of them. Like Eastwood is Eastwood is his own animal. He really is. When I think what's interesting about my understanding about Eastwood, Eastwood so totally believes in his story that 
he's willing to put a baby with that's a doll and he just it's a, <laughs> you know, that he, he doesn't he knows his story works and that yeah. he that's why he doesn't care about continuity you know it's why i mean you think about someone like mangled who will shoot the same shot for days on end because of continuity to get the yeah. weather right you know and that eastwood won't even think about it he'll um eastwood uh, what i loved about working with eastwood so much and and i i got not name dropping, but I, you know, I talked to Sean Penn about it. And Sean was like, the thing you have to understand about working with Eastwood is that you, he's a quartet and you are coming in to do basically maybe a one minute solo in the quartet and the right. quartet's going to happen anyway. So if you, if you mess up your solo, that's on you. And it's almost like what I saw with Eastwood is that he's playing beautiful music and he like turns and points to you and you got your minute. And if you don't get it, it's, it's, it's you, it's not him. He didn't. Right. And he, he expects you to get it. And he, he was probably, I guess the most um, unique in that way, but like in each case, they're, they're all so different. And in Ron Howard's case, I would say it's really interesting because, you know, Ron really has this really beautiful reputation and deserved reputation of just being a really wonderful, nice guy but he's also tough and demanding and mm -hmm. very specific in terms of what he wants. And he has an amazing producer who, who helps him do that. You know, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, so in each case they, I don't know. I, I just, that I am more fascinated by directors and cinematographers probably than story. <laughs> well, you had two cinematographer credits I saw on, on your resume. I, I mean, I guess I just, I really like, I will tell you, I've been lucky that way again. Um, I've worked with some really extraordinary cinematographers. Obviously, you know, Ro Roger Deakins is, if not the greatest cinematographer alive. I mean, Faden, I think his work on 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 Ford vs. Ferrari is, is extraordinary. And right. I, I've a number of times, I did a really cool movie called Peacock with, um, uh, uh, Peacock is with uh, the terrific actor, um, oh God, what's his name? He does all Chris Nolan's films. Um, anyway, Killian and, Murphy. Yeah. With Killian. Exactly. Oh, okay. Where Killian plays, uh, he plays a man and a woman, brother, sister married together at the same time. It's a very interesting, weird movie, okay. but the DP on that movie was one of, and I'm forgetting his name is like one of the great French DPs of all time. Okay. Again, to go to what's interesting, you have someone like Faden or, or Roger Deakins has every tool in the tool book ready and waiting for them to work with, right? Mm -hmm. This this DP, and I, again, you guys can look who, who it was. Uh, his name is Philippe Rosselet. Philippe Rosselet. Okay. Yeah. And I think My he producers tagging me. <laughs> so he did, um, you know, I think he did a bunch of, uh, who is it? Is it um, Tim Burton's movies, right? Anyway, the point is he's the opposite. He uses nothing. He's okay. basically got a crew of like two or three people. So like that, again, it kind of goes to that same thing. That's so interesting about filmmaking where you have a director who it seems like you would need all the tools, but his work is just as beautiful. So, right. you know, I, I don't know. It's, I, I'm so intrigued by it all.
Uh, we got we were inter- not listen now it's my turn to name drop we got to interview quentin tarantino for a long period of time and in the midst of the conversation uh we brought up deacons because everyone on our podcast adores deacons and he's a legend and tarantino's like you know it's just the way he lights certain things and you know tarantino's so film and not digital and all that and i've never heard anybody talk about deacons like that and i was like what do you mean you don't you don't adore everything he goes no it's just the way that he lights it you know i could i could light it that way if i wanted to do that so I, I loved that sort of angle I'm not going to argue with Quentin. Sure, he knows. <laughs> that correct? Yeah. I bet there's something there. <laughs> there might be. There might I be. I bet your deacons have said no to Tarantino. <laughs> <laughs> it's very possible. Well, um, I mean, this is a story maybe I should not tell. I said no to Scorsese. And what? I well, the reason is this. So. I got offered, so I I didn't know this, but I was coming off like three or four movies in a row, big hard movies, and okay. someone said, you know, and I know somebody who was there is why. They went to a screening that some that I my name had come up for a a part in Aviator, and mm-hmm. and Scorsese went with a couple people and they watched like a an hour long reel of like four or five of my movies, a couple of which were coming out, okay. and he said, great you know let's let's cast him and i was exhausted frankly and i didn't like the part and so the part was was kind of a non-part if you go back and look at aviator but he was in the entire movie so i was like (laughs) oh i'm gonna go work with scorsese which is what i frankly should have done i it's one of the few things in my whole career i kick myself for just to go be there on his set and watch that man work every single day but i was i was like oh I'll have another opportunity. And frankly, my understanding is you don't get another opportunity. You do not really? turn down Martin Scorsese. And my assumption is I bet you Tarantino's the exact same way. I bet Roger Deacon said no to Tarantino at one point. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to uh, go over to uh, Costner and Yellowstone just for sure. a bit. Like what, what is, what is it like? What are what are some of the challenges of trying to embody young Costner? I got a chance to interview him uh, one time. He came down to a set. He was doing the Jack Ryan movie with Kenneth Branagh, sure. and Costner came down to set while we were interviewing people. And he wasn't even supposed to be on set that day, so he came down just to sit down with us journalists. And after five minutes or so of a roundtable, they said, "Okay, Mr. Costner has to go." And he turned around. and He was like, "You brought me all the way down here for this. I'm I'm going to stay." And he did forty minutes of just like entertaining the room. And I have not witnessed like movie star charisma, you know, at that level than when I saw him do it. So I, how do you tap in and try and, and bring that to the screen? Well, I am daunted by that, I must tell you, because that is the thing about him. He really and and frankly, what so it's Taylor Sheridan, who I I I Taylor Sheridan to me is one of the people I called and said, hey, man, I will do anything to work with you. Yeah. Genius. And he was like, oh, well, I got this idea that nobody's really into, which is to do flashbacks. And Costner wants to do the flashbacks, but I don't want to use, it's not that I don't want to use Costner. It's that I don't want to use um, facial, the, the, the Irishman stuff that they were doing. Right. The aging, the de-aging. I just just don't want to do that. He goes, look, I know Costner can do it, but I don't want to spend the money and I don't want to spend the time. And I, and so I said, well, if you look at, I, I, this was the conversation we had. So you look at Godfather, you know, frankly, De Niro didn't try to be Pacino. I said, the reality is, is that, um, oh no, sorry, De Niro didn't try to be Brando. Yeah, he, Brando. He, he did his own, his own thing with it. And he said, what I, he said, exactly. That's what I want. I want you to come. 
I actually want to keep you away from him. Like, I don't, I don't want him to be on set. I don't want you to hang out with him. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. I was like, but he said, I'll send you a little bit of stuff of what he's doing so you can get a a sense of it. But I want you to, he said, first of all, I think the guy's really different at that point in his life. He said, I think Mm -hmm. he's, he's a much different man than he is when he's Costner. And I was like, okay. So, uh, it's a very, I guess, complicated answer that really comes down to my absolute admiration for, for Kevin is to say, like, I didn't really try to play Kevin. I really tried to do more what, what Taylor was saying about what his idea of the character was. And, you know, Taylor comes from that world, right? Like for real, like Taylor is a real true cowboy. And he ran cattle for years, like across the country. Um, his story is just such an amazing story. And so he was like, look, I believe you need to just play what I think is the character. Uh, don't do not try to be Kevin Costner. <laughs> so but you eventually got time to pick Costner's brain. I hope because he's you know, got I different did. stories. Yeah, I did. And, and he was like, again, been nothing but similar to what you're saying. Like the most, like just, he's such look, it's the one thing to go to what I was saying about directors I have yet to work with a real movie star who is not a real movie star for a reason. You know what okay. I mean? Kevin yeah. Costner is to me like sort of the ultimate example of that. Like he is pure charisma. He's just, there's something about that guy that's just, it's, it's, he glows. Um, and yeah, that's. But yeah. then he went on a talk show uh, and he told a story about him getting upstaged uh, in a club one night by Sean Connery. And you're oh. reminded there's always another guy. Right? <laughs> I heard a cool story. Actually, I forget who it was. It told me the story, but that was that they were walking down the street with Harrison Ford okay. and that something like Harrison Ford, there were like, I forget who it was, was on the cover of, of a magazine and Harrison Ford, like this was like at, you know, right during the time of, you know, Harrison Ford, I, I, I forget what it was, but who it was, it was somebody extraordinary. Harrison Ford got visibly angry. <laughs> that this guy had a cover that basically was saying, you know, calling him a great movie star. And he was like, okay. what about me? <laughs> uh, Harrison's had his time to shine. I think he's doing just fine. Oh, that brings me around back to Mangold then. What do you think about the fact that he's tackling Indiana Jones? Does that surprise you? It doesn't. I tell you, Mangold is as Spielberg-like in my mind as anybody I've worked with, meaning like a true – do you ever go back and see – there's a really cool thing if you haven't seen. James Mangold, when he was 19 years old, before he had ever even made a single movie, somehow ended up on the Charlie Rose show talking about his knowledge of cinema at 19 years old. And Charlie Rose even says to him, how are you here, man? And he said, oh, well, your producers, like your, your guest canceled. And someone said, we know this guy. And he was like, yeah, but why you? And he was like, well, I, you know, I got chosen as like the next whatever Hollywood genius award or whatever. Right. And he was like, yeah. who knows that? And he's like, David Geffen, Jeffrey Katzenberg. And I Spielberg. <laughs> and he was like, those guys chose you as the next. He was like, yeah. And it's like, it is the most interesting interview because the confidence of Mangold in that interview and he basically says to him, so what What do you need to make a movie? And he's like, I need $150,000. He's like, that's it? He was like, that's it. And that's heavy. He makes he goes out and makes heavy yeah, yeah, yeah. That money. But the, the point is, like, he always, I think, had Spielberg in his sights. And what the kind of movies, you know, this sort of, 
how do I put this in the best way? Populist, just beautiful, you know, cinema, just pure cinema. So I'm not only not surprised, I'm thrilled for him. That's for sure. You look a lot like Harrison. You could have played Indy. If, uh, I would, oh, if, man, I would love to. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That kind of pressure would terrify me. I would love to. Yeah. <laughs> well, who are some directors, before we run out of time, who are some other directors who you hope to get a chance to collaborate with? Without a doubt, number one would be Tarantino. Okay. I really think, man, I've always just been a monster fan. I, I vaguely know him and, you know, and have walked up to him multiple times to say, come on, man. Um, I also think what he does is so interesting with actors where he takes actors and somehow taps into their personalities in ways that sometimes, you know, really captures. He's done it so well, obviously. Look, look, look what he's done with um, Kurt Russell, right? Yeah. Like, He's just somehow he gets that, and I I, I don't know he he to me. Um, do you think he only does one more, or do you think he keeps going? He said he's going to retire after one more film. I think he's so a man of his word, <laughs> you know, True. meaning like he believes himself. So he believes, and in the best way, he believes his own hype, right? So I think I think he'll do what he says. I wouldn't be surprised at all. Um, without a doubt. I, I don't know. I definitely have always been drawn to, to, you know, very, I guess, European cinema. Um, I obviously would like to work with Inarato and Quaron. I mean, without a doubt, you know, that whole, the, the trio of those guys, I really, really am. I'm constantly. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of directors out there. Wittenberg, you know, really, yeah. Yeah. really interests me. Um, I just, you know, yeah, there's a number of them. That's fantastic. Um, let's, I'll, I'll end it on this um, to, to get back to Purge and Endosances. And Josh, thank you so much for your time, man. This has been a fantastic conversation. Oh, I dig it. These, these ones in particular, where you get to really talk with somebody about cinema that knows cinema, is, that's my favorite, you know. Really break it down. Uh, that's what we want to do on this show. We tr- quite often try to get a long form and just dive into the things that are interesting. But you mentioned kind of earlier uh, the return to movie theaters and you actually waiting, you know, to, to go back and see it. in a cinema what is your hope for the back half of of this year and in terms of people going back and and testing out the waters how do you think the industry has has changed uh over the course of this and and the types of movies that are going to make it to theaters look i I don't have you know any knowledge that anyone else doesn't have i think really what's going to happen is that there's going to be movies there's going to be in every decent sized town there will be a huge uh, multiplex which basically plays the same two movies mm-hmm. and then there will be a, an art house cinema if you're lucky in your town and that the same movie that you would watch streaming which will be released streaming will be released in that movie theater and then you make the choice do you take your do you go on a date and see the movie in the, the little art house cinema or do you watch it at home and frankly many times i don't know that it really is that valuable to go to the cinema these days unless it's you know unless it's a really truly a movie made for cinema i can tell you i have made many movies in the past five years that frankly were not made for a big screen they they were just making the movie so i do believe that there's a powerful shift that i appreciate like look i went to see taylor sheridan's movie the other day in a movie theater because I knew Taylor's a cinema maker, you know? So Mm -hmm. I wanted to see it in a cinema, but I don't necessarily think, I think the interesting thing is people delineate based on, you know, what, 
you, and some of it will just be the mistake of like, oh, well, I can watch a movie tonight at home, right? Um, and like, I don't know, I watched Luca last night, you know, the Pixar mm-hmm. movie, right? And I don't know that I needed to go see that movie in a, in a big screen. You know, and so I think these companies are having that same weight, right? Like, do, does it, so I, I really don't know. The one thing I will say, as we all know, the experience of seeing with an audience can be a, a massive game changer in terms of your your the emotional experience. I mean, as you know, I've read research on how the human heart begins to align up in a group of people. So if you're in a movie theater, that that the 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 rhythm of of the, your actual heart rate. Uh, changes based on the fact that you're around all these people and that when those jump scares and moments happen, or if it's a love story, like you're actually, you're actually um, regulating as a group. And so to me that there's great power to that in terms of, I mean, look, that's why live theater is so powerful. Oh, I think you're a hundred percent right. When you look back at the, your memories from certain movies, it's, it's the experience almost more than the movie itself. Sure. You know, like I remember South by Southwest opening night, you know, because it was Cabin in the Woods and the reaction to it, you know, people going off, off, you know, just jumping out of their seats. They were so excited for it. And I'll, that's the, those are things we'll always remember. One of my favorite cinema experiences of my whole life was I was 16 years old and my girlfriend and I went in the middle of the day to the Tacoma Theater and it was playing The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Okay. And there was not a single person in that theater. And it was to this day, the one of the most magical cinema experiences of my life, which takes away everything I just said, but because we were alone <laughs> together, this teenage couple watching this like bizarre, wonderful, political, sexy movie. Yeah. It's like to this day, one of the best experiences of my life. It's so, amazing. Yeah. You know what it is too? It's that the line between, you know, movies and television has blurred, you know, or it's, it's gone, you know? Yeah. So that Scorsese will do the Irishman for a streaming service, you know, or Kevin Costner makes Yellowstone. Like sure. it's fascinating to see that shift too in in the era. Without a doubt. Look, yeah. my understanding is I, I, and this has been true in my life. Many actors these days at the highest level are more competing for television projects than they are for cinema projects uh, really? because you know the first of all the money seems to be in television these days I don't know that it's in you know the big movies right now because they're so mm-hmm. risky right so um, but more than that it seems to be what people are the some of the great storytelling some of the great talent right now is is gravitating towards television uh, but I do think there will always be the the pure directors like like Mangle, like Scorsese, like those guys who are going to Tarantino, obviously, are going to really stick to making these extraordinary events, event cinema. Um, yeah. And that that's where I think we'll go. Um, but I also think hopefully you'll still get the opportunity to go see a good movie in a movie theater if you choose to. You know, that yeah. that's my hope. All right, we're going to end it right there. Um, and this isn't part of the interview, but I know we just missed your 50th birthday, man. I hope you did something really cool and special for it. Congratulations. Yeah, I got to be here with my little boy. So, yeah, I did, actually. That, that was it. Yeah. It, Good. It, That's like the, the quiet family birthday that you that you don't necessarily think you want. And then you're like, oh, this is exactly what I want. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. Yeah. Uh, this was a blast, man. I really enjoyed this. Thank hey, you so anytime, much. Truly, anytime. I dug it too. Yeah. Very cool. And continued success with this. And we'll catch up with something really soon. Thanks a lot.
We want to thank Universal Pictures for giving us time with Josh Lucas. Just a great guest. Uh, really enjoyed talking with him. Totally great dude. Hopefully we'll get him back on the show. He'd be a really cool recurring guest. Uh, I want to let you guys know that like, I'm not a huge fan of the Purge films, but I really enjoyed this one. Uh, it, it has some really relevant political commentary, uh, relevant social commentary, very interesting characters. It's not nearly as um, gory or um, uncomfortable as the Purge films have been before. Uh, this director is a great up-and-coming filmmaker. You heard Josh sing his praises uh, over the course of our interview, and I think it's someone you're going to want to pay attention to. If you want to hear my full review for The Forever Purge, uh, it's in episode number 171, so make sure you guys go back and check that out. Uh, we will be back with a bonus episode for the premium uh, show on Monday, and then we'll have the two-hour Quentin Tarantino interview running the week of July 3rd. So make sure you guys are subscribed to Real Blend so you get all of this content the minute it drops. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.